All right. Morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. It makes a real crackling sound opening all those packets, doesn't it? Reminds me of that candy when I was growing up. What's that candy called? Is it reminding me? What? Pop Rocks. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. You guys could be disguising your consumption of that candy each Sunday while we're opening those packets. So, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the blessing of being able to worship you because that means you've reconciled us to yourself through the sacrifice of your son. We can have fellowship with you, and this is really an intimate time where we're, um, we're communing with you through what Jesus has done in, in uh, removing our sin from us and taking it to his account. And so we thank you for the privilege of drawing close to you and hearing from you through your word. We pray that's what would take place. I think these verses have great application for us during this season. I thank you for uh, bringing us to them. That's really my view. And I ask that you, all of the wonderful truths that are contained in them, you would please uh, help us to glean them and to seize me as your vessel to sanctify and encourage and challenge each of us regarding what was taking place in the Corinthian church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. This morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 8 if you'd like to turn there. 1 Corinthians 8. The title of this morning's sermon is Using Knowledge Morally. Using Knowledge Morally on verses 1 through 8. And the next Sunday will be on verses 9 through 13, and that will be Using Knowledge Immorally. So this morning, using knowledge morally, and the next Sunday, using knowledge immorally. Last Sunday, I shared that I wanted to have some verses on wisdom um, and how wisdom is needed to navigate through trials and circumstances and difficulties in life. And as I was working on the sermon at the beginning of this week and somewhat the, the week before, it became evident pretty quickly that we need to understand the differences between knowledge and wisdom. I think sometimes we might think of them synonymously, but there are considerable differences between knowledge and wisdom and we probably won't um, fully benefit from the sermons on wisdom unless we understand what knowledge is. And so not wanting to cover everything that the Bible teaches about knowledge, but having a good foundation associated with it, I wanted to look at 1 Corinthians 8, because in my mind, this is sort of the, um, and I guess it's just my opinion, but the premier chapter in the New Testament in, in terms of helping us understand what knowledge is and even what it isn't. I want to begin with a question, give you a moment to think about the answer. Not to put any pressure on you, but most of first service got this correct, okay? <laughs> so, knowledge. You're going to raise your hand. Is knowledge moral, immoral, or amoral? Is knowledge moral, immoral, or amoral? Amoral meaning non-spiritual or spiritually neutral. Okay, raise your hand if knowledge is moral. Oh, you guys are good. <laughs> immoral. All right, amoral. Oh, all right, this brings us to lesson one. Knowledge is amoral, but the way we use it is moral. Knowledge is amoral, but the way we use it is moral. Just to let all of you who are watching the live streaming know, everyone in the service got that correct. So. <laughs> Many things are amoral, but the way we use them, or the ways we use them, are moral and immoral. For example, oh, well, actually, let me ask you, what are some of the things we've talked about before, even somewhat recently, that's amoral? versus moral or immoral? Money. Yep. What else is amoral? Money is amoral, but the way we use it or spend it, in fact, every single cent we spend is spent in a moral or immoral way. What else is, what else is amoral, but used morally or immorally? Guns? 
guns are amoral. I mean, sometimes the world wants to convince us that certain things are immoral when they're amoral, like maybe guns or money. And sometimes the world wants to convince us some things are amoral when they're immoral, such as abortion or murdering babies. Food is also amoral, but our relationship to it is completely moral or immoral because we can um, be gluttonous. We, God expects us to exhibit self-control. We can crave or covet food too much. We can covet money. These things can become idols to us. Similarly, knowledge is amoral in that it's simply information. But what we do with that information or what we do with knowledge is moral or immoral. Here are some examples of moral uses of knowledge. Jacob Perkins, he used his knowledge of mechanical engineering to invent refrigeration. The Wright brothers, they used famously their, their knowledge of aviation to develop what? First airplane or flight, human flight. Tim Berners-Lee used his knowledge of computer. Does anyone know what he used his knowledge of computer programming to develop? I'll give you a hint. Al Gore tried to take credit for it. Anyone know? The internet. Isaac Newton, he used his knowledge of astronomy to promote creationism. People throughout history have used their knowledge in immoral ways. So these people use their knowledge in moral ways to benefit or help humanity. Other people have used their knowledge in immoral ways. Genghis Khan used his knowledge of politics and war to lead a Mongol horde that killed millions of people. Karl Marx, he used his knowledge of law and philosophy to try to destroy capitalism and then create this this, uh, classless and communist society. Margaret Sanger, she used her knowledge of reproduction to establish organizations that led to the foundation of what? Planned Parenthood. Richard Dawkins, he's used his knowledge of biology to promote atheism and the theory of evolution. In this chapter, we're going to see how the Corinthians, some of them were using their knowledge immorally, and Paul's going to tell them how they could use it morally. I want to give you the background of these verses since we're jumping right into the middle of this epistle. If you never heard this before, you've at least probably noticed it as you've read 1 Corinthians. The uh, letter is largely an answer to the questions that the Corinthian church was asking. Paul basically moves from answering one of their questions to the next. And in chapter 8, he deals with a question that had been dividing the church. And what was that question? Should we what? Should we eat meat sacrificed to idols, right? That was the question that the Corinthians were asking that was dividing the church. Here's how this predicament developed. The Greeks and the Romans, they were polytheistic, which means they worshipped multiple gods or false gods. And they were also poly, um, polydemonistic, which means that they worshipped or believed in multiple demons and evil spirits. And they believed that these demons or these evil spirits would try to invade the human body by attaching themselves to food. And the only way that the food could be decontaminated of these evil spirits that had attached themselves to it was to sacrifice this food to idols. And so to be clear, food sacrificed to idols had two purposes. And one of the purposes would be the most obvious. They're hoping to uh, gain some favor from this idol that they're sacrificing to meet to and receive some blessing from, from that idol. But second, uh, secondarily, they were hoping to remove any evil spirits from the food or decontaminate it. And when the animal was sacrificed, some of it would be burned on the altar, usually the fat, because that's the part that would put off the most smoke. And then they would take the meat that was left from the sacrifice, and they would consume it at these wicked pagan feasts that would take place in the temple following the sacrifice. 
but many times they would have some amount of meat that was left over because they would have more than the people could consume and perhaps because they wanted to make money for the temple they would then sell that meat that was left over at the temple itself and then this would be the meat that was sacrificed to idols since there was and i just want you to picture how this would happen or what this would look like since there was no refrigeration in those days the meat that was left from the sacrifices it had to be consumed really quickly and so it would go it, it would move um, very quickly from having been used in a sacrifice to an idol to possibly being consumed by a christian or resting on the on the table of a christian that's about to eat it now this left two different groups or this left two different um, locations for meat to to be sold there was the marketplace where meat that had not been sacrificed to idols was sold but then there was also the selling of meat in the temples themselves and here's what makes this particularly interesting because the meat that had been sacrificed to idols was not as attractive to people as the meat that had not been sacrificed to idols when that meat that had been sacrificed to idols was sold in the temple it was typically sold at a discounted price because there were not as many people that wanted it and so you have these two places where the meat's sold the marketplace at regular prices and then the meat sacrificed to idols sold at temples at discounted prices and this left people in two different groups and the first group is in verses four through six go ahead and look with there look there with me please the first group in verses four through six paul says therefore as to the eating of food sacrificed to idols he says we know and i just want you to notice that paul uses the word we here we know that an idol has no real existence which means what an idol is not real it's nothing and that there is no god but one for although there may be so-called gods or imaginary gods or made-up gods in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords yet for us there is one god the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one lord jesus christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist and so paul uses the words us and we which shows that he's in this first group this is what he's convinced of i mean nobody's going to know better than paul or believe more strongly than paul that there is no god except for the one true god and that there are no um, false gods in existence and so this first group this is what they would say they would say that we are convinced demons do not inhabit food so we don't have to worry about them contaminating it idols aren't real in other words there's no being out there that the romans are worshiping named zeus or hermes or mars so whatever is being offered to idols isn't really being offered to anything i can go into a temple i can buy some of this meat it's no different than any other meat except that it's cheaper which basically means i'm being a good steward on my finances if i buy this meat versus other meat that's what the first group would say now look at the second group in verse 7 paul says however not all possess this knowledge the knowledge that he just described in verses 4 through 6 but some people some believers through former association with idols they eat food as though it's really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled so the second group it's important to understand it contains jews and gentiles the jews in the second group see idolatry as really the worst sin that a christian could commit 
And so they look, and they're going to have nothing to do with this meat because it's been used in something that are, their minds is terribly evil. And plus, if you want to get this meat, where do you have to go? You have to go into the temple of an idol, and they think that no, no good Christian would have anything to do with an idol's temple, say nothing about going in there and buying meat that might support the, the worship of that idol. And so in their estimation, anybody that would consume any of this meat or purchase any of it is, is, is sinning. Then you also have Gentiles that are in this group. And if you look in verse 7, Paul says, through former association with idols. Because remember, this is the early church. Some number of these uh, Christians were recently converted. They're Gentiles who only weeks or maybe even, um, you know, months or weeks earlier were worshiping at many of these temples. They were offering these sacrifices that were being offered. They believe that God has delivered them from this idolatry to the true uh, worship of, of the one and only God, and they can't imagine that they would return to what God had so graciously delivered them from. And just the thought of those temples and everything that's associated with them, I mean, if God's ever brought you out of something before, you know that just the thought of it can, can, be, um, can grieve you. And so they want nothing to do with the temples, they won't go anywhere near them, and they think that no good Christian has any business going near any of these temples. So the second group, they probably think the first group is sinning. And there's one more point about this second group that you need to notice. In verse 7, Paul said that they had weak consciences. I don't think that there are too many phrases that are so uh, twisted or misused in some Christian circles than what it means to have a weak conscience. And I say this with an amount of sensitivity to it because while I'm thankful for the churches that God allowed me to uh, attend prior to, and it's really only two, I mean, I was saved in Calvary Chapel, and then I went into ministry at Grace Baptist, and then I came here. So my experience with churches, it, you know, isn't really that, that vast. But I can say this, there were some circles uh, that I was familiar with where individuals largely criticized people for having a weak conscience. And the idea was that if you have a weak conscience, you're a weak or immature believer, and you're not recognizing your freedom or your liberty in Christ. And once you mature in the faith, or once you're stronger as a believer, and you recognize your full liberty and freedom in Christ, then you'll know that you can do certain things. And that, I was really convinced of that, because I was listening to this from people that um, I respected, and in hindsight, looking back, many of the things that they acted like Christians had the liberty or freedom to do now seem to be unholy things. And so it was almost as though individuals were promoting an amount of unholiness. And if you were to, to live a holy life or there were holy things that you were going to engage in and there were unholy things that you were going to avoid, then you were considered to be a weak or immature Christian. And you were almost considered a mature or strong Christian if, if you would go and engage in many of these things, and now looking back, I think Christians probably, you know, don't have the liberty or the freedom to do. And so my whole point is this. Having a weak conscience is completely amoral. It's just like food, or it's just like knowledge, or it's just like guns, or it's just like money. It is not a credit to someone to have a strong conscience, and it's not a condemnation to someone to have a weak conscience. People are not more spiritually mature or less spiritually mature if they have if they have weak consciences or if they have strong consciences and so what paul is saying here is not a compliment and it's not a criticism it is a completely amoral observation about these people in in the second group 
Now, I want to explain something so you can appreciate how interesting the situation is. In Paul's day, you'd know this, there's no um, photocopiers, there's no printing presses. Many people couldn't even read. And so when one of Paul's letters would reach a church, well, actually, let me back up and get you to think about this. Paul was so highly esteemed or respected in the early church that there were many people, they would not even say that they were followers of Jesus, they would say they were followers of who? They would say, I'm a follower of Paul, or I am a follower of Apollos, before they would even say that they're following Jesus. That's how highly Paul was esteemed. It, it's probably in many people's mind, he was the, the greatest or most prominent Christian in the early church, with Peter perhaps being a close second behind him. And so when Paul said something, it had tremendous credibility with people, and it should have. I mean, I think there's a verse in one of Peter's letters where he talks about Paul's writings being the inspired word of God, which they are, which is why we include the Pauline epistles in our Bibles. We see them as though God said them through Paul himself. And so when Paul would send these letters to churches, people were waiting and hanging on every single word that he said. There wasn't uh, the, the opportunity for everyone to have one of these letters, though. And so there would be a pastor of each congregation, and he would stand before his church, and then he would read this epistle after it had been received from Paul. Now, considering that meat sacrificed to idols wasn't, wasn't just a big enough issue for them to, con- to contact Paul about it, but it was a big enough issue that it was dividing the church tells us that there were people on both sides of the issue that had very, very strong feelings. People who were upset with each other, people who were frustrated with each other, people who thought other people were in sin, and people who thought that other people were in sin in terms of not recognizing the freedom or liberty that Christ had given them. And so they've been waiting for Paul's letter to arrive, and so when it arrives, what do you think their desire is? That Paul is going to do what? He's going to say, you're right and they're wrong. He's going to say that um, you guys should be applauded or encouraged for your view. There's some number of people that were probably waiting for Paul to rebuke or condemn the people that disagreed with them. And so there's, you know, there's no chapters, there's no verses in these letters that Paul would send. And so just picture the Corinthian believers are sitting there they're listening to this letter being read, and at that point when the pastor says, now concerning food sacrifice to idols, what do you think everyone in that congregation did? <laughs> they're, you know, their ears perked up, they sit up a little bit straighter, and then they think, we've been waiting for this. This is that point where you're going to you know, tell us we're right, and then you're going to give to all those people who've been disagreeing with us about what big sinners they've been. Now, before we read what Paul said, I want to ask you a question. Which group would you be in? Okay, think about it for a moment. Raise your hand if you're in the group that would eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Wow, just one person? You know it's been sacrificed to idols. So basically, raise your hand if you would go to the temple and you would buy some of this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Really? Just one or two people? Okay, raise your hand if you wouldn't eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Interesting, okay. So we were talking about it as a family, and I was surprised. I was like, all of my kids would not eat the meat. And even I, I told them, I said, okay, you know, that's fine. That's actually one of the main points of this. It is fine, whichever group you're in. 
And I said, that's fine. I would just like to hear you share or talk about why you feel the way that you do. And I was really blessed by many of their thoughts and observations about this. And I even told them, hey, you know, you're saying you're in the second group, but Paul, who in many people's minds is the greatest Christian, uh, you know, in church history, was in the first group. We can tell that by his use of the words we and us. And they said, yeah, you know, we just wouldn't eat it. Um, Because I asked you to vote. I'll tell you which group I'm in, I guess, because I'm always looking for a deal. I would have been in the first group. (laughs) So here's the thing. This is the point. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what group you're in. And even though Paul was in the first group, that's still what he communicated. He still communicated that that even though other people disagreed with him, that was completely okay. It was fine for them to disagree with him. You're not better or worse. You're not more or less mature. You're not more spiritual or less spiritual. If you're in one group or the other, this is not my opinion. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. So I want to go into a big detour here, but because we read this verse, I do want to do justice to it and give it a little attention. This is one of what I would say... um, are many, one of many New Testament verses making clear that food itself is amoral, that there is no, that there is no food that is immoral or bad or wrong for, for us to eat. Um, the only thing that is bad, this is what's interesting, is to condemn people who feel differently about food than you do. And so if, you know, people came to our house and they were uncomfortable, what, what would be the premier food that people would be uncomfortable with? Let's just be bacon, probably, right? <laughs> and so, I did, I heard one time, I didn't get this young man's permission, so I'm not going to mention Micah Cash by name, <laughs> but I heard he learned about what's in bacon and he won't eat it. Is that correct, Micah? Okay, but it's, is, it a, it's not a, is it a moral issue for you or is it not? It's not a moral issue for him, but that's the thing. If it was a moral issue for him, you're supposed to let it be a moral issue for him. That's one of the points of these verses. You're not supposed to argue him argue him out of that. Yes, you can tell Micah that he will not experience as much joy and happiness in life, (laughs) but then Micah can tell us that he will be much healthier and probably live longer. (laughs) So here's the point, though. The people that want to eat bacon are not to condemn the people that don't want to eat bacon, and the people that don't want to eat bacon are not to condemn the people that want to eat bacon. That's Paul's point with this whole situation here. Neither group is better or worse if they do or don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, and this brings us to lesson two. Having knowledge doesn't always mean determining who's right and wrong. You know, Mike, I had no intention of mentioning you, but your mother was really in your ear, and I just so... Uh... <laughs> That's fine, I like it. I like that we're a family and can joke around. Just always kind of hope I don't upset anyone if I ever do. I try to be more, much more careful nowadays than I was in my earlier years. You should notice Paul doesn't say who's right or wrong. He doesn't take anyone's side. He doesn't commend one side or rebuke the other. He doesn't tell anyone to straighten out the others. And interestingly, this is not the only time that Paul handled things this way, which is basically to say this is not the only time that he probably frustrated a church that wanted him to side with one side or say one side is right and the other was wrong because what's sort of the companion or parallel chapter to 1 Corinthians 8? 
Romans 14, right? They kind of go together. You'll hear people say that. They'll say, this is a 1 Corinthians 8. This is a, a Romans 14 issue. So in 1 Corinthians 8, they're arguing about meat sacrificed to idols. Well, in Romans 14, they're arguing about food, not, not necessarily meat sacrifices, but they're arguing about food, and they're arguing about days of the week. And you can be sure that the Corinthian church was filled with people who were also divided about this. And you can kind of imagine how this happens, right? When you're in the Old Testament, are some days, or you're under the Old Covenant, are some days more important than others? Definitely. I mean, there were holy days. There were, there were days where you could, you know, be cut off from the nation if you, were, if you failed to observe them because of their importance. So then you can see how when you end up in the New Testament, there's going to be some people who feel um, strongly bound to recognizing or appreciating or esteeming one day is higher than another. And so this is a very contentious issue in the, in the early church where people were looking at days of the week differently than each other, and they're waiting for Paul to send them a letter and again say who's right and who's wrong. And I'll just read one verse from it. Romans 14, verse 5, Paul says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Do you think that there were plenty of people who were disappointed when they heard this from Paul? Yes. And the important part is where it says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Just hold on to that. We're going to be talking about it more. Here's the question. Why didn't Paul say who's right or wrong, or why didn't he side with with one group of people against the other? Because we're dealing with what? We're dealing with amoral issues. We're dealing with non-essentials, or we're dealing with what we could call spiritual liberties. People are not more or less spiritual if they feel a certain way uh, about these topics. Okay, when we disagree with people, I know you pr- maybe you've never really thought of disagreeing this way before, but I would invite you to consider disagreeing from a biblical perspective and what it means, interestingly, to disagree with people is to allow them to be ignorant. Let me say that one more time, because it'll relate to the verses we're about to read. Disagreeing with people or accepting disagreement with people means allowing people to remain ignorant, because you're not forcing what on them? You're not forcing your opinion, or you're not forcing knowledge on them. And this is not my opinion. This is exactly what the text demonstrates. Notice something. In verse 7, Paul said, not all possess this knowledge. One more time, in verse 7, he says, not all possess this knowledge. What knowledge did they not possess? They didn't possess the knowledge that he had just described in verses 4 through 6, or they didn't possess the knowledge that idols are nothing, or they didn't possess the knowledge that the meat that was sacrificed to them was amoral and could be consumed, or that it was amoral to or acceptable to consume this meat. Now, since people since these people didn't have knowledge of these things, or since the people in verse, in verse 7 did not have the knowledge that Paul described in verses 4 through 6, we would say that those people were what? They were ignorant. We're almost, you're almost hesitant to say it, and this is kind of one of the um, inconsistencies or differences between New Testament language or Greek and the English language, because in the English language, the word ignorant has developed a very negative connotation. 
If someone, you know what I mean, right? If someone was to say, you're ignorant, we usually take offense at that or we feel insulted. We tend not to tell people that they're ignorant because we know that they'll feel insulted or offended by that. But biblically speaking, ignorance is fairly amoral because it simply means that you don't know something. It's not a criticism. Many times in the New Testament, Paul told people that they were ignorant and they did not feel insulted or offended by him because they knew that he was simply saying that they hadn't been taught this yet. They hadn't been told this yet. Where it says, not all possess this knowledge, that's a very concise definition of ignorance. Not all possess this knowledge, that's a very nice, concise definition of ignorance. Unfortunately, we tend to almost think of ignorance as the opposite of wisdom. This is important, especially for our sermons that are coming up. We think that ignorance is the opposite of wisdom. We think that wrongly. What is the opposite of wisdom? Foolishness. The opposite of being wise is being foolish. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. The opposite of knowledgeable is ignorant. So associate wisdom and foolishness as opposites and associate knowledge and ignorance as opposites. And this brings us to lesson three. Ignorance is the absence of knowledge. Lesson three, ignorance is the absence of knowledge. Now here's what's particularly interesting about 1 Corinthians 8. Throughout Paul's epistles, when people were ignorant, what did he typically do with them? He, you could say, enlightened them, or he cured them of their ignorance, or he shared knowledge with them. Just listen to these examples. Romans eleven twenty five. Paul says, I don't desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. So then he explains the mystery to them, or he gives them knowledge about the mystery so they don't remain ignorant. 1 Corinthians 12, 1, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. Then he teaches them about spiritual gifts in the rest of the chapter. 2 Corinthians 1, 8, we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. And then he explains his trouble to them. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And then he explains to them what happened to those who fell asleep. There were many times people were ignorant, and Paul cured them of their ignorance by sharing with them the knowledge that, that he thought that they should have, which is why 1 Corinthians 8 is a particularly interesting chapter because he didn't do that. He allowed people to remain ignorant, and I just want you to notice this. In verse 7, regarding the second group, Paul says, not all possess this knowledge. Now, if you look in verse 1 with me, I'd like you to see this with your eyes. Look at verse 1. Paul says, regarding the first group, concerning food offered to, not, to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. So you contrast these two groups. You've got the second group in verse 7, and Paul says, they don't have knowledge. They're ignorant. And then in verse 1, when Paul talks about himself, and the others in that group with him, he says, we do have knowledge. So one group is ignorant, and the other group has the knowledge that the other group doesn't have. Now, considering the number of other times that Paul took ignorant people and gave them knowledge so that they would no longer remain ignorant, what would you expect him to do with the first group who has the knowledge, as he said in verse 1? You would expect Paul to say to them, you need to straighten them out. Give them the knowledge that they should have. Don't let them walk around in ignorance. Or, or maybe even don't let... This is my, what I might expect, especially if I was really familiar with Galatians 5. Make sure they 
recognize the freedom and liberty that they have in Christ. Don't let them walk around missing out on that freedom or liberty. You have a responsibility to go tell them. But that's not what he did. And so this is what we see. Sometimes Paul shared knowledge with people so they would no longer be ignorant. Other times he didn't share knowledge with people so that they could remain ignorant. But here's probably a better way to say it. So that according to Romans 14, 5, they could remain fully convinced in their own minds. Let me say that one more time. There were times when people were ignorant. Paul didn't want them to remain ignorant. He gave them knowledge. And there's other times that people were ignorant, and he wanted them to continue to be ignorant or remain fully convinced in their own minds. And the next week we'll talk about why that is, because he didn't want people, he didn't want to bring people to violate what? Their consciences. That's right. We'll talk more about that next sermon, though. So if we follow Paul's example, then there's going to be times that we're going to share knowledge with people so they're not ignorant, and then there's times we're going to allow people to remain ignorant. Now, the obvious question is, how do we know when to take each approach, right? (laughs) How do we know when we should be (laughs) teaching and preaching and sharing knowledge with people or when we should be quiet? And I'll give you a few encouragements. The first encouragement, strive to be a guest versus a pest strive to be a guest versus a pest. Does that make sense? Guests are what? They're welcomed or they're invited, right? Pests are what? Pests are unwelcome. They're not invited. And so the point is, if people invite you to share your thoughts or they ask you, then you've been invited. And now you're a guest. And now you should tell people what, what you think. There are some things that we do as a family There are some personal convictions that we have, and I don't think I've ever talked about them from the pulpit before, and I don't know that I ever will because they fall into this category that where I believe we should remain quiet. However, if a service ever ended, there have been plenty of times in private conversations people have asked us about some of our personal convictions, and then we're more than comfortable sharing sharing what we believe or sharing our knowledge with people. But if we were, you know, we kind of, if we were to launch into some of these discussions when we haven't been invited, then we suspect people will find us to be more pests than guests. If people don't ask for your thoughts and you haven't been invited, but you share anyway, you're going to be annoying to people. So consider whether people want to hear your thoughts on some of these areas that are minor issues or when, you know, Jesus talks about straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Consider whether this is an area that's a gnat versus a camel, whether something where people really need to be straightened out. And this leads to the second encouragement. Consider what is, let's say, a gnat versus a camel, or consider what is a non-essential or an amoral issue or a non-spiritual issue versus an essential or a moral issue or a hill to die on. If you look at the times, we don't have the time to do it, but if you were to go to your Bible and look at the times that Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant, and then he shared knowledge with people, he was dealing with what sorts of issues? essentials or major ones or camels or hills to die on or those places where we put our stake in the ground and we say we're not going to budge this this can or should be a divisive issue if we if we do not agree on this we maybe we can remain friends maybe you know we can have a relationship but our relationship will be hindered it's a test of fellowship probably should not be in the same church together i mean those are the sorts of things we share in membership meetings because we understand that people can disagree with us on many issues and we can still have wonderful fellowship 
But there are some other issues in which case if people disagree, then we probably would not be the, the best church family for them, and it would be better to have that determined ahead of time versus some years down the road where then people are uprooted and it causes pain and hurt in the, in the church body. In 1 Corinthians 8 and in Romans 14, Paul was dealing with meat sacrificed to idols, food in general, and days of the week, which could all be considered what? Non-essentials or gnats. And since they're non-essentials, it's only important, and this is really important, regarding non-essentials, it's only important for people to be fully convinced in their own mind. Regarding non-essentials, it's only important for people to be fully convinced in their own mind, which means there will be times that we will allow people to remain ignorant. Some years ago, Dave Zumstein, he shared something with me that didn't seem like a kid. He asked me, did I get Dave's permission for, to, to share this? So if Dave's watching, do I have your permission to share this? Okay, Dave gave me a thumbs up at home. Okay, he shared something with me that did not seem particularly profound, but the longer I've been a pastor, the more profound it has seemed to me. And he said this, the problem with essentials and non-essentials is that people don't agree what is an essential and a non-essential. <laughs> and do you see why that is very problematic? I said we should not try to share with people if something is a non-essential. But if some people think something's an essential, they're going to try to share it with others who could very well view it as a non-essential. They're probably not going to want to listen to them, and it's usually going to cause problems. So the people who think it's a non-essential are going to be annoyed by the people who keep trying to share things with them when they haven't asked or invited that conversation, which means the people talking to them are going to seem like pests. Now, if you put yourself in the place of the people wanting to share who view this as an essential, they're going to be annoyed by the people that don't want to listen to them talk about something that they think is very important. And in most people's defense, or to most people's credit, when, they, when something is an essential to them, and they're trying to share it with others, I mean, this isn't always the case, but generally they're trying to be helpful. They're loving or they're concerned about others. They want people to know this for their own benefit. And now, that's not always the case. I mean, there's some people that are just argumentative, or they just want to debate. Or to them, it's, it's not about helping people. It really is about being right and wrong. And I'm right, you're wrong, you need to recognize I'm right, and you need to recognize you're wrong. And that's more important than actually being loving or helping. But for many people, it's just an issue of this is essential, it's significant, and I really want you to know or understand this for your benefit. But for the person that thinks that that's non-essential, then they're just going to be annoyed or perhaps um, find that it's obnoxious that the person keeps talking about it. So we should consider two things. <laughs> okay, if you missed that, Katie said that she just got a thumbs down from Dave. How did you get a thumbs down from Dave Zumstein? How did you get it? <laughs> oh, that's too good, because I was going to say, Dave now I can text people a thumbs up or a thumb. Now, I'm running short on time, and I'm going to pretend like I'm not, because the next service is until 7, so we're pretty good on time, I think. So, um, you know, Dave, I can text people a thumbs up or thumbs down because I have a smartphone, which I think most, most of us in this century do as well. But <laughs> Dave has this flip phone. 
And I think he's only sent four text, text messages on it, or ever sent four text messages in his life, and 75% of them were to me. And I know he can't do a, a thumbs up with his phone, so I was wondering how he sent this thumbs down. And Katie says that Amy sent a picture of Dave. Oh, she's not saying what sister was. Send a picture of a thumbs down. So I don't know what picture is going to be sent now. Let me talk about this in length. But I give Dave a thumbs up for sharing something with me that I found to be very (laughs) fitting in ministry, that there can be real tension associated with people disagreeing about what is an essential versus a non-essential. So I just want to encourage you to consider two things. First, Consider whether we've already talked to someone about something, you know, um, float it out there, share it, see if there's interest, and if we've already shared it or discussed it, and we try to talk to them about it again, then we might be guaranteed to become a pest. Second, and this is important to me, but is it important to others? Most importantly, is it important to God? So we just want to ask. I know that to me this is a, uh, an essential or a major issue but is it really that important to others? Is it really important to God? Now, up to this point, here's what we can see. It's not about who's right and wrong. It's not about who's right. That's okay. We love the sound of babies in here. I've, I've been waiting to hear babies in here again, and so I'm thankful to hear, to hear babies in here. Um, up to this point, we've seen it's not about who's right and wrong, and it's not about making sure that we share our knowledge with everyone around us, but then that begs the question, well, then what is it about? If that's not what it's about, what is it about? And I'm glad you asked that. Take a look. Thanks, James. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1 to see what it's about. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And notice the words love builds up. And you could say that this is what it's all about. Paul tells the knowledgeable people to use their knowledge in moral, loving ways that build up, and this brings us to lesson four. Knowledge is used part one morally when combined with love. Knowledge is used part one morally when combined with love. You'll notice there's no part two there. That's what we'll talk about part two next week. I couldn't get it all in this sermon. So next week we'll talk about using knowledge immorally, but we use knowledge morally when it's combined with love. Here's the famous quote. I suspect you guys would be able to finish it for me. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, what? In all things, love. Or in all things, charity. Listen to the way verse 1 reads in the Amplified Bible. 1 Corinthians 8.1, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge concerning this. Knowledge alone, in other words, knowledge without love, makes people self-righteously arrogant, but love that unselfishly seeks the best for others builds up and encourages them to grow in wisdom. And so to use knowledge morally, it must be combined with love. Both of these are bad. Let me tell you two things that are both bad. Knowledge without love and love without knowledge. Let me say it one more time. Knowledge without love is bad, and love without knowledge is bad. Let me just go through love without knowledge first. Love without knowledge looks like this. These homosexuals should get married. That's love without knowledge. It's, it's wanting what we think will make people happy, but without the knowledge that God's word condemns it and says that it's detrimental or even devastating to people. Love without knowledge 
is telling a pregnant woman, you, you know, you don't want that baby. It could be very, very devastating to you to have, to have this child at, at a young age or out of wedlock or whatever, whatever circumstances cause someone to think it's loving to say that, but it lacks the knowledge that that's murder, that, it, that in God's eyes it's a, a horrific evil. So love without knowledge is bad, but at the same time, knowledge without love is bad. And Paul made the point about the necessity for these to go together. In other words, Paul talked about combining truth or knowledge with love, such as in Ephesians 4.15, he says, speaking the truth or speaking knowledge in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. But he also talked about combining love with knowledge. Philippians 1.9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and with discernment. So, the issue for the Corinthians is some of them had knowledge, but they didn't have what? They didn't have love. So, they were sharing their knowledge in, in hurtful or unloving ways that were tearing down. They should have been sharing their knowledge in loving moral ways that would have uh, built each other up. And here's the issue. When we say the right thing, or we share knowledge, even if it's true, but we lack love when we say it, or we say it harshly, it becomes the wrong thing. And I've learned this the hard way. This is the mistake that I've made at different times in my life. I mean, if I had to look back and think, you know, what, what do um, you know, I regret in my communication, it would be sharing knowledge without love. Because when we, when we say something, even if it's the right thing, but we share it the wrong way, it becomes the wrong thing. Does it make sense if I can say we can be right and wrong? Have you ever been, am I the only one, have you ever been right and wrong at the same time before? You're right regarding what you were saying. In other words, there was, it was knowledgeable or there was truth in it, but it was wrong because of the way that it was said. I can remember this one time I was in this car ride. I say it was a car ride because that's a pretty confined space, right? I mean, you're not going to get to get out and just start walking away if you disagree with what, what someone says. And there was this gentleman in the car and so this debate begins, and, and can be the case with many debates that then escalate into arguments. It's going back and forth, and the longer we drive, the more this is escalating. And one of the gentlemen in the car, he said something, and when he said it, I thought two things. I thought, that is absolutely true. That's absolutely correct, what he just said. And I thought, he said it absolutely harshly. And then nobody talked after that. <laughs> so it was like the whole rest of this trip was quiet until we reached our destination. And so that, that was a good example of being right and also being wrong because of the way that something is said. Now, 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, let me ask you this. Are 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 primarily about meat sacrifice to idols or food or days of the week? No, they're definitely not. I mean, that would be missing the point. That, the point of the chapters is that these chapters are not about that. <laughs> the point in writing these words to the Corinthians and Romans is that you guys are worried about or you're prioritizing meat sacrifice to idols and days of the week and food, but you should be prioritizing what? Love, unity, edification, and encouragement. And so can you learn about food in First Corinthians 8? You can. I said something earlier that verse 8 is, a, is one of the informative verses in the New Testament that food is amoral and we can eat. We can eat whatever we want. You can learn about days of the week 
in Romans 14, but that's not what these chapters are primarily about. Primarily, these chapters are about love, unity, edifying, and building each other up. I want to conclude with this. It looks like Paul didn't say who's right and wrong. There was a lot of people in the Corinthian church and in the Roman church who were waiting to hear from Paul and have him say who's right and wrong. And it looks like he didn't, but this is what I would say. He did. He did say who's right, and he did say who's wrong. If you can read between the lines or you can get the main point that he's making, the people who are right, it doesn't matter what they're doing with meat sacrificed to idols or days of the week or food, the people who are right are those people who are using their knowledge in moral, loving ways that build people up. So if there's a group that Paul is going to commend or compliment, it's those people. And if there are people who are wrong, or there's a group that Paul is going to condemn or criticize, it's going to be those people that are using their knowledge in unloving or obnoxious or annoying ways that, te that tear people down or cause disunity in the church. So in other words, the side that's right is the side that is loving toward those with different opinions. The side that's wrong is a side that's unloving toward those with different opinions. I didn't, I didn't, you know, to be candid with you, last week, I didn't expect to preach this this Sunday. I thought I was going to be talking about wisdom. But seeing the need to understand the differences between knowledge and wisdom, I was digging into this chapter, and I thought, wow, I'm really thankful for this, Lord. I'm really thankful that you've brought us to this simply because we have entered a, a season, I mean, as a church or as a state, or as a nation, or even as a world, where there are strong disagreements. There are strong opinions about many of the things that are happening right now. And I, I think it was Jameson, sorry, this is my second service, I don't remember if Jameson prayed it or Pastor Nathan prayed it, but the enemy wants to divide during this time. He wants to get a foothold. What he wants more than anything is to take these non-essentials and then make them into very divisive issues between Christians. Do you think the devil cares much about the coronavirus? I don't think so, but I think he would love more than anything to be able to divide people over some of the other things that are taking place that really should not be causing division. And so this greatly ministered to me, caused me to want to reevaluate those things in my mind that are, that are important, that are essentials versus non-essentials, and more importantly even, how I'm handling those, how I'm talking about, talking about these issues with people. Am I doing so in a loving way, or am I just doing so in a way where it's about me being right and these people being wrong? So I'm thankful. I think there's a lot of application. I hope that you can, you can take this home and that God can speak to you through it, and it can be applied to your life, and, and most importantly, that we can be applying it to our church family. Father, we thank you for the wisdom found in your word. We thank you that your your word or that wisdom tells us how to handle knowledge. Really, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the appropriate application of knowledge. Wisdom is handling knowledge rightly. And so one way to be wise, which is why, as James 3 says, the, the wisdom from above is loving and, and peaceable. Help us to take the knowledge that you have given us and use it in loving moral ways, knowing when to share it and when to remain silent. And if we do share how to share it, help us to, to combine love and knowledge in our lives. And we pray for unity in our church, in our families, 
Um, and I ask that you would just speak to us and bring these verses to mind in our relationships with people, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.